Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the IFG's Deputy Director and today's podcast presenter. Champagne corks are popping, the bunting is out and celebrations are in full swing. Yes, there are going to be jubilant scenes at Labour HQ today, with the party waking up to what looks like a very positive set of local election results. So what did Thursday's vote tell us about the state of British politics? And just how significant are these elections? We'll be taking a look today. How should Keir Starmer build on the momentum of any electoral gains? Well, one option is to hold a reshuffle. But as a general election approaches, picking a front bench team is more complicated than ever. Our new paper explains what Starmer needs to do and we'll be talking to its author. Then we'll attempt to answer how to survive all this politics and how to stay engaged without getting enraged by it all. Joining me throughout, taking a break from making a pile of coronation quiches, is the IFG's constitutional expert, Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. How are the quiches going? It's going extremely well. I'm only making one coronation quiche because nobody needs more uh, quiches with raw beans and spinach in than they have to. But I think considering the starting recipe, I've done a fantastic job. And I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Raphael Burr, The Guardian's leader writer, columnist, podcaster and author of a new book, Politics, A Survivor's Guide. Hi, Raph. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I want to talk about your book a bit later on, but let's start with the story that's knocking politics off the front pages, the coronation. Kath, constitutionally speaking, how significant is this? Charles has already been king for months now. He's he's already been king and legally speaking, uh, you don't need a coronation. So thanks to law, he was already king. He could already do the job. Uh, so it's a constitutional tradition rather than a constitutional necessity. That said, it seems to be that if you do decide to have a coronation, you've then got to, legally speaking, have a coronation oath. So that's the sort of important part of it. But obviously, you know, there is loads of history and tradition. So it's a, a sort of constitutional, poignant moment. Yes, of course, it's it's very important. The oath is pretty much the same. They've had all the lawyers go over it. So he's using the same one as his mother and grandfather. But there are a load of other changes that they can do to the ceremony. It's a really weird one because the ceremony is actually, it's an Anglican ceremony run by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So it's sort of up to them how they do it with input from the palace and also a little bit from the government. So it seems to have been the Archbishop of Canterbury decided that the public would be able to pay homage to the king and not necessarily the palace's decision. And that doesn't seem to have gone down particularly well. Raf, how excited are you about the coronation? I find these things always endlessly fascinating. I don't have strong political feelings uh, towards the monarchy, for or against. I find it intriguing. I mean, like most people in this country, I've never seen the coronation before. I've seen lots of royal weddings, I've seen lots of state openings of parliament, and I've seen lots of flummery in tradition. And, And the thing that I find interesting about this particular occasion is, unlike a lot of those things... It, it, is, it is not a sort of Victorian confection. A lot of those, the traditions you tend to think of as you know, ancient, but actually surprisingly modern in the overall history of things, whereas this really goes back a long way. I mean, the sort of got Edward the Confessor's spoon being used to, to put holy oil on on the king. I think that might, Kath will probably correct me if I'm wrong about that. I have he, no idea. This it is goes, why I'm not doing any yeah, commentary over here. It goes, weekend. I mean, we're, we're talking about, and, and particularly this point, this is a religious service, uh, the the function of which is to imbue the monarch with the spirit of God so that he can represent holy will in his kingdom and his his fulfillment of his duties as a monarch. That is a more intense statement of what the monarchy is than I think we're used to when we're saying, oh, look, doesn't the bride have a lovely dress? So it's quite an interesting one from that point of view. Well, it sounds like we'll all be watching along tomorrow. 
So let's switch from the crowning of King Charles to what Labour supporters are hoping is going to be a significant step on the journey to the coronation of Prime Minister Keir. We're recording this at about 1.30 on Friday, and at the time of recording, I think we can safely say that Thursday was a good night for Labour, a bad one for the Conservatives, and the Lib Dems will be feeling pretty upbeat too. Our colleague Peter Horston is our local elections expert at IFG, and he's joining us for his podcast debut. Hi, Emma. So, Peter, can you start by giving us a sense of the numbers? Yes, you're right, Emma. It's been quite a poor night for the Conservatives so far, and not just a night stretching into the day, really, because there are still lots of councils still to declare. But based on what we've seen so far, the Conservatives have lost about 300 seats. Labour has gained 170 or so, and the Lib Dems 75. The Greens, too, have made some gains in certain areas as well. If you remember, just before the election, the Tory party chairman, Greg Hands, talked about losses of around a thousand seats or so. And certainly, you know, based on the results so far, we could be heading for around that ballpark for sure. Okay, so about as bad as expected for the Conservatives. Which are the places to watch and what's happened in them so far? Well, I think for the election, there was a lot of commentary and probably a lot of political focus on so-called red wall and blue wall areas. So the red wall were places in the North and Midlands, historically supported Labour, but voted for Brexit. And then the blue wall was areas in the South, which were traditionally conservative and tended to vote Remain. In the red wall, Labour would be very happy that they've won back Stoke and Trent. That was a no overall council before the election. There's a couple of Tory MPs there. They also won the Middlesbrough mayor election up on Tees Valley. I think they were helped by the move to first pass the post for council mayoral elections. In the blue wall, the Lib Dems will be delighted that they won Windsor and Maidenhead. There'll be lots of attention there this weekend as well. But also in the south, there are interesting results for Labour. They they took Swindon off the Conservatives, uh, so they'll be very happy with that. I mean, look, local elections aren't quite stay up right through the night elections. But in terms of watching results come in, are there any key moments still to come that we should be we should be looking out for? Yeah, I think one particular result we could look at was Medway in Kent, which Labour won. I think it's an interesting one. It can show that Labour can win in the South. I think when we talk about things like levelling up and and the Red Wall and so on, we tend to focus on the North. But there's actually quite deprived parts of the South East, and Medway was pro-Leave too. Um, In that part of Kent, Labour held seats in Parliament in in the Blair days before 2010. So I reckon that could be a key battleground before the next general election. I think by the time our listeners will be listening to this podcast, all the results will be out. But, you know, still do pay attention for how Westminster digests these results next week after the coronation. The really important thing is how backbench MPs, commentators react, how the party leaders can can get back on track after the election. I mean, you're seeing that a bit already with the, the commentary coming up. I was watching BBC before this and you had Andrea Leadsom obviously giving the party line, which is, you know, it's very disappointing for us. But we can see that Rishi Sunak is still doing well as a leader and sort of talking about how Labour aren't making as big gains as they could be. Then you had a Conservative councillor come on and had lost his seat, who was the leader of the council, and was obviously extremely upset about what had happened. And that will be playing out across the country. You know, the Conservative Party, their councillors are a big part of their uh, local parties and play a really important role in in sort of fostering support and in, you know, the long run into a general election as well. So what they think and what they think needs to happen now is as important as what MPs think needs to happen now. So the fact that you're getting these different views coming across already is something that Conservatives are going to have to watch out for. Indeed. And Kath, let's just um, go to the history for a second. 
Um, do local elections tend to tell us much about what might happen at a general? Well, there's always lots of caveats. I mean, turnout is always much lower. You know, obviously the elections aren't happening across the country. They haven't happened in London and quite a few other places. And, and you know, a lot of the focus is obviously on England. A year out from a general election, of course, people are, are going to be looking at it. And I think the most important thing is it tells the story of the narrative going into that general election. Because for the last year, you know, certainly since the fall of Boris Johnson, Conservative polls have been plummeting. They have restored themselves a bit. But what Rishi Sunak was looking for was sort of being able to consolidate his position. And the big question is, can even he doing a better job as prime minister than his two predecessors, can that restore Conservative fortunes? Or is it just 13 years in power, you know, the, the difficulties that the country is in and the anger in the country about all these various issues, is that just too big a, a hill for any Conservative leader to climb at this time? Raphael, what do you make of um, of what we've seen so far in the locals? Um, yeah, well, I think that last point is, is incredibly important, the sense of to what extent is there going to be a kind of a course correction in the story that Westminster has been telling itself about what's been going on in politics? Because... It was certainly, you know, a building, a sort of a feeling that Rishi Sunak was stopping the rot, turning it around. And that was based on a number of things. One was a sense that Downing Street was just being run more competently than it had been, certainly under this trust, but also actually equally certainly under Boris Johnson. And sort of the emblem of that, there was the, you know, the Windsor framework, the Brexit deal was very important. And then the fact that in Parliament, Boris Johnson didn't really manage to summon a, a sort of spiteful insurrection against the guy who he felt had sort of defenestrated him unfairly. That sort of blew itself out. And so the feeling that actually the Tory, the discipline and the message discipline and the loyalty were there in a way that wasn't necessarily obvious. And a lot of Conservative MPs were saying, certainly to me and others, that on the ground, what they were hearing was, well, OK, Rishi's all right. We don't really know what to make of Keir Starmer. Uh, and that the, the feeling was that might have some kind of magnetic pull that could overcome the other thing that people were saying, which was after you gave us Boris Johnson and Liz Trust, we're never voting for you again. Uh, and it turns out, I think, that that second bit might be more fundamental than attraction to Rishi Sunak. And, you know, it turns out the Windsor framework doesn't really cut much ice in actual Windsor, where a bunch of people just voted Lib Dem. And, and just on that, I think what's very interesting is the possibility, and this should really alarm Conservatives, is that the way the electoral battle lines are drawn now, it feels there's quite a tidy division of Labour between different opposition parties that really facilitates tactical voting. So Keir Starmer doesn't need to be the most hugely charismatic, desirable potential prime minister if a just get the Tories out impulse can sort of arrange itself to make sure that the, the, the Conservatives are, are discharged from power. And then you get into the vicious cycle where Conservatives start to think they're going to lose their seats. Uh, as Catherine absolutely rightly said, you've got lots of disgruntled councillors. Everyone's got an ideological axe to grind. Everyone's got a magic solution to you know, the tax cuts, hard on immigration, whatever it is that they think will solve the problem. And then all that loyalty and discipline that Sunak has built up dissolves in fear. Uh, and that could be very, very problematic for the next few months. And given what you said, Raph, about the fact that that kind of, you know, competent, relatively safe pair of hands managerial message that Sunak's been focusing on doesn't appear to have, have cut through in the locals. Do you think we are going to see a switch in their messaging or their strategy over the next year? I don't think they can change either the position or the message. It's very clear that, you know, and actually probably the, the, the five pledges that we know about reducing inflation, stopping the boats, that, that, that I, I don't think is really available for renegotiation. And also, 
I think there's a very serious structural problem here. This isn't certain, but it's certainly an impression I get. And there is polling that supports this, I think, which is that Rishi Sunak, it can be simultaneously true that Rishi Sunak is more popular than his party and that helps, but it helps sort of with the wrong Tories. So the people, the ex-conservative voters who are most likely to think, well, actually, Rishi Sunak's doing all right, might also be those ones who who are a bit Remain-leaning, a bit more Cameroon uh, in their positioning. So Swindon is interesting in this respect. Windsor is interesting in this respect. And these are the people who are most likely to say, actually, after you gave me this trust, it's over. I can't do it. And to not be people who would have been absolutely appalled at the thought of making Jeremy Corbyn prime minister, uh, but can stomach, you know, um, Keir Starmer, enough that they would vote Lib Dem, even if they wouldn't necessarily vote Labour. And so, I mean, in answer to your question, I don't really think the Tories have an alternative message or strategy, but I think they, they will need is to sort of hold their nerve and nerve holding when you've got 100 MPs who think they're doomed is actually quite tricky. It's just practically very difficult in the parliamentary party. And what about for Labour? Do you think the results are going to tell them, right, this is working, we're, we're sticking with kind of where we are, or are we like, likely to see any changes there? It's very hard to overstate how jittery Labour are you know they're not pretending to not be complacent about this and that's partly just because of the scars the twinge in the scars of all the defeats 1992 um, uh, 2015 the the sense that it's just structurally so hard even before you start from the fact that they were they're trying to build a parliamentary majority out of a very deep smouldering crater which was their worst election defeat you know really for you know best part of 100 years in 2019 so um and also those things that were giving the Conservatives confidence, namely people saying, I don't really know what Keir Starmer's about. Uh, he doesn't still look tremendously comfortable when you point a camera at him. He doesn't have a sort of an automatic uh, celebrity appeal, which I think is significant, important in, in modern politics. You know, people might like that or not, but it seems to be a fact. And Labour MPs are picking that up too. So they do feel that their lead is soft. Where I think they will be reassured is that the tactical focus on, for want of a better term, the red wall, those seats of Brexit, trying to get places that swung very hard behind Boris Johnson because of Brexit, just really driving hard at those places, which has alienated a lot of the liberal left progressive urban support that is actually the activist base of the Labour Party. That does appear to be working enough that Keir Starmer can essentially say or get his lieutenants to say, look, shut up and stop complaining, this is working. And again, in recent weeks when people have felt that it's been narrowing, that was potentially causing a lot of problems for Keir Starmer, that, that disjunction between the voters that he needs and the activist base that he's got. Great, we'll be talking a bit more about what next for Labour shortly. Peter, um, one other new feature of, of this round of elections was voter ID um, that was causing lots of um, disgruntlement and anger beforehand. What difference did it end up making on the day? Yes, there were a few stories on Twitter and so forth about people being turned away from polling stations. I think it's hard to say what difference it has actually made, though. As Kath said, turnout is normally far lower in local elections than in general elections. I think we still need to wait for final turnout numbers, but from what I've seen so far, the results are sort of an average of what we tend to see in a local election, about 30 to 40% or so, for perhaps a bit lower, actually. I think the really important thing is is that this issue of voter ID won't go away. I think it'll become a bigger issue, actually, in the run-up to the next general election, when it might affect more people when the turnout's higher there. I think the other thing to remember, of course, is that voter ID is quite common in a lot of other democracies. In fact, it's been... Um, compulsory in Northern Ireland since about 2003. So it's something uh, I guess we've got to get to grips with. Um, 
So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out over time, particularly at, at general elections and so on with a bigger turnout. And Peter, just briefly, you mentioned uh, Northern Ireland, and I think we've got more votes to come there, haven't we? Yes, that's right. So the local elections in Northern Ireland are taking place in two weeks' time. The Northern Ireland office actually pushed them back by two weeks to avoid the coronation. They use a more proportional voting system called the single transferable vote, and it takes longer to count. So they didn't want the elections counting taking place tonight and into the coronation, so they put, put them back by two weeks. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, so let's turn our attention to what Keir Starmer might do next. And that is not, if reports are to be believed, holding a shadow cabinet reshuffle anytime soon. In fact, we might have to wait until the autumn for that. So how important is that reshuffle whenever it takes place and how can Starmer get it right? Well, happily, that's exactly what a new IFG report out today is looking at. And its lead author, IFG researcher Grant Dalton, joins us now. Hi, Grant. Hi, Emma. So, Grant, our report's headline is the next reshuffle should be Labour's last one before an election. Why are we arguing that? So ministerial churn is a big problem in government. When ministers move too often, they can struggle to kind of get up, get on top of their brief, can struggle to build um, relationships. The civil servant can find it difficult. But actually, a lot of those um, problems apply in opposition as well. Opposition is a chance for a team to get used to working together as a, as a ministerial team and for people shadowing a brief to understand and get used to a job. So we argue that there should be as little change as possible, or what if there is one more reshuffle, then that should be the last for an election. Obviously, leaders of the opposition might want to change their team for a number of reasons, getting rid of poor performers, moving around people who they want to promote in, in their team. But I think our main message is that reshuffles too close to an election can actually undermine um, the ability of a party because Labour, if Labour did win um, a majority or um, enter a coalition in the ne- in, after the next general election, could undermine their ability to do well um, in government. And there obviously has been quite a lot of discussion about what the timing is going to look like. There were lots of rumours that there'd be a reshuffle um, amongst the shadows straight after the locals. Now looks like that isn't going to happen. I mean, based on the research that we've done, Grant, what is the last point that Starmer should be holding a reshuffle and is kind of after party conference season kind of autumn too late? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. It partly depends um, whether Starmer thinks that he knows or can make a good guess at when the next election is going to be. I mean, it, it's quite possible it would be, it seems likely that it would be either in spring or autumn um, next year. Um, in terms of the what we looked at in this report, we looked at the um, uh, reshuffles before the 1997 and 2010 um, changes in government. In both cases, there were reshuffles around a year before um, the general election. Um, in the Conservatives' case in, in 2009, a, a bit more than a year. We would argue, I think, that reshuffling less than a year before a general election uh, is, is quite dangerous and can be quite counterproductive. Shadows usually need at least a year to get, get used to their brief, to be involved in manif- manifesto setting in their area, to test out the relationships with potential junior ministers and other key ministers, and also to take part in contact with civil servants um, in the department they're shadowing in in the build-up to an election. So if Starmer does decide to do it in autumn, then there's the potential that that could be only six months or six or nine months before a general election, and that seems to us to actually be a bit of a risk. Kath, Grant mentioned pre-election contact with the civil service. Can you tell us a bit more about what that involves and how access talks work? There are a convention, uh, again, that happens, but they're pretty firmly embedded. So we're expecting them to happen this 
autumn, at least going into the new year. And they're basically an opportunity for the shadows to meet, certainly the permanent secretary of the department they shadow and probably a few other senior officials. And in theory, they are to allow them to talk through their plans for government so that the civil service are a bit forewarned, that they can do any preparation for sort of detail, you know, detailed stuff that's going to like if there's a big machinery of government change or a major new policy that means that they're going to have to move around staff within the department because because we have these sort of very quick changes of government, nothing like what the US do where you've got three months to prepare. And so it puts a lot of pressure on that moment of transition. So in theory, these are a thing that have evolved to, to try and resolve that. And as Grant says, I mean, they can be really important, not least for obviously warning the civil service so that they know that they're coming. We know in 2010, uh, nobody saw Ian Duncan Smith coming as Work and Pension Secretary, except the think tank that he worked for, where he developed the idea of universal credit. So on the day he was appointed, civil servants have to rush around and get copies printed of the big report that set out his plans. Um, and that and the lack of preparation, you know, in the reports that we've done over the years uh, suggests that that was a big problem in the early days of universal credit. And one of the reasons why uh, the costs and the complexities and the technology problems spiralled uh, in those early years. Um, Raf, why do you think that Starmer and decided not to go ahead with the reshuffle after the locals? And, and do you think that was the right call? Uh, well, I mean, a prior question here is, you know, is there a difference between signalling that you might do a reshuffle and actually doing a reshuffle because the advantage of saying of, of letting it be understood that a reshuffle might happen is you impose a bit of discipline on people who want to impress or don't want to be sacked and that's a game that everyone plays whether that is a good thing or not it's a different question and and the downside to actually doing the reshuffle is that you would make enemies because if you remove someone then that's someone who might have then be on the back benches be disgruntled and start sort of complaining about the, the direction so that's the sort of the cost benefit equation and also, I think there's a, a separate wider problem here that's been alluded to a little bit which is that uh, and I think this goes deep it's a deep problem with sort of Westminster culture more widely and some of the way we do politics in this country uh, is that the skill set you need to be effective not just in opposition but often just sort of clambering up the the, the Westminster ladder in terms of you know, how you get noticed by the media, how you place stories, the relationships you build are very very different from the managerial competences you actually need to run a department and um, I think partly this because we don't have any separation of powers. There's all sorts of reasons why it might be the case that someone can be a can be very very good at politics in a particular way, but not actually at all qualified to to run a department and implement really really complicated policy. And that's particularly true in things like the you know work and pensions or health. You know, things where some deep institutional knowledge is 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 very important. And certainly, I've over the years I've met interesting and formidable shadow secretaries of state and shadow ministers of state who really know the policy detail and they are the most obscure unlauded people who never make it to cabinet because that's not the skill that's valued certainly by the lobby and by you know by a lot of, of Westminster so I hope that Keir Starmer will will consider very seriously you know who should be the best secretaries of state I strongly suspect from watching the way politics has evolved over the years and watching the way the current Labour operation works, his main focus will be getting over the line of a majority on election day. And he'll worry about how good a government that is the day after. And given kind of what you've heard, Raf, do you, which posts do you think might be moving around when the reshuffle comes? Are there particular shadows that might want to move at the moment? Well, again, he's, he's limited for, 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 for manoeuvre to some extent. I mean, do you remember there was that episode where he, he, he tried to move Angela Rayner once 
upon a time, and that that didn't end well for him. It, it, it's it's hard to be hard to be sure, but I imagine you know, you've got what you want to look at is what are the portfolios that cover the issues that Labour will really want to fight an election on. And obviously the main one is the economy and Rachel Reeves is clearly not going anywhere. She will, barring some extraordinary development, she will definitely still be the shadow chancellor after any reshuffle. Most people think where streeting is performing well and he is, I think, one of the best communicators in in, in the Labour Party uh, at the moment. And so, you know, maybe the Home Affairs brief, that is vulnerable, but beyond that... You know, it, it gets less noticeable. So it's not clear actually what difference uh, a reshuffle would make. And as you say, it's partly down to what the policy priorities um, of Stammer are. And it feels like that tussle for, you know, what the kind of the big three or big four are is still going on. Yeah, we, we saw this in 97. Um, you know, Grant's report shows that there were actually some key positions where people had been shadows for several years before the general election and had were quite across their policy briefs and, you know, communicating well. And one of the key ones there was David Blunkett in education. And that was probably one of the areas that Labour had worked out the most detail of what they wanted to do when they got into government with the numeracy and literacy strategies. Yes, of course, the economy is going to be one of them. But are there other areas where they've got detailed plans for what they want to do in government and whether that's different from what's going on? And there, you know, there are problems about disruption if if you start moving around, not just the shadows, but also the shadow team underneath the, the lead shadows, because they're going to be the people that have to implement stuff. They're going to be the people who need to know the detail of the bills that are going through government if you've got areas where you want bills to go through rapidly you need people who understand them because there's going to be huge pressure on them um and there still is a media job to do after that of explaining obviously a lot of it's going to depend on if labor win the size of any majority or whether they even get a majority in the first place um but raf's absolutely right that obviously for an opposition party there primary focus at the moment is going to be on getting elected otherwise none of this stuff matters I think we're just trying to make sure that they're aware that there there can be a moment when you're in government where you suddenly wish you'd done a bit more thinking about what to do when you're there and uh, that is something that unfortunately you've got to do along the way. It's also a function of being in opposition for a long time that you don't have that many people who've done serious Secretary of State jobs. I mean, Ed Miliband will be important simply as someone who who's actually has had a, has sat around a cabinet table before. Keir Starmer has not. Yvette Cooper has. Rachel Reeves has not. So uh, the, that's, getting that balance is very interesting. I remember uh, going back to that sort of 2010 moment, the, the, the decision that George Osborne made uh, very, actually, a very smart move to bring Ken Clark into the shadow cabinet, essentially recognising, you know, this is George Osborne, recognising his own callowness or the fact that people were worried that he didn't look experienced enough. And actually, uh, you know, it, it took a certain amount of surprising sort of self-awareness to to say, well, look, I'm getting this big beast in to show that actually you know, we're, we're serious about government and I'm not just a young Turk who doesn't really know uh, how to do anything other than fight campaigns. And obviously David Cameron was making those decisions, but actually George Osborne was. <laughs> and um, if Cameron got some decisions right when it came to picking people who, uh, who were in new government, Grant, I think the report says that Tony Blair uh, might not be a case study to follow, um, particularly the kind of 97 transition. What, what did you find there? As Kath said, there was there was definitely continuity in the, the really key offices, which for him were obviously Prime Minister and, and Deputy Prime Minister and John Prescott, the great great offices of state and education. All of those were in place, uh, the shadows were in place from at least 1994, so had at least three years to work on policy in, in opposition and then 
stayed for the whole of his first term. But outside of those, there was a, there was a lot of churn, particularly a major reshuffle straight after entering government in 1997. So in policy areas like health, there were new secretaries of state or shadow secretaries of state in 1995, in 1996, in 97, and in, in 98. So a lot of change in, in a policy area where um, I think they were had some, some quite major ambitions on on health, um, and and that sort of change um, isn't something that Starmer, I think, would want to replicate. The other thing that's worth mentioning is the creation of the Department for the Environment, Transport and the Regions, which was a new department given to John Prescott, as well as his Deputy Prime Minister responsibilities, in 1997. It wasn't announced beforehand, and, and he hadn't been given the chance to shadow any of those jobs directly before 1997. So it then led to the three shadow cabinet ministers who had been shadowing those responsibilities having to move in a, in a much larger reshuffle than uh, could have been the case. And part of this in, in the 1997 case is the fact that there were shadow cabinet elections, which meant that they, they tied the hands of Blair in opposition. And that's not something that Starmer will have to deal with. But I do think possibly thinking about lining up some of his shadow cabinet with the machinery of government he intends to, because otherwise you then end up with a situation where you have to do a lot of change on entering government, which actually doesn't do anyone any good. And Kath, we're focusing on ministers talking about the reshuffle, but it's not just ministers that count, is it? Keir Starmer's staff, or at least one particular um, incoming member of staff is making lots of headlines this week. What is the latest in the Sue Gray saga? Uh, yes, so we had a uh, massive load of briefing earlier in the week about sort of a major piece of insights from the Cabinet Office coming out on Sue Gray and whether or not she'd broken the ministry, uh, sorry, the Civil Service Code. And in the end, what came out uh, was a much more anodyne piece that just kind of set out what the rules are in place at the time. And it seems from the the various stories that um, journalists have got hold of that what went on behind the scenes was a bit of a an argument about what should actually be released. It's not normal to do an inquiry into somebody who's already left the civil service about the proprietary of what they did on leaving the civil service. But obviously, Sue Gray's departure was very controversial. A lot of ministers were very upset. So the Cabinet Office seemed to have looked into, did she breach the civil service code or not. And then part of this is also going off to ACOBA, which is the body that oversees uh, the rules put in place for both ministers and civil servants when they take up a new job post-government about how they can operate so that they're not unduly using their privileged information in ways that they shouldn't so that, and that there aren't any conflicts of interest. And it kind of all implied that there's quite a hostile reaction from the government towards Sue Gray and that that's going into ACOBA. But obviously ACOBA is a body that comes up with its uh, decision independently and the Prime Minister can put in you know, detailed on what he says. And it also, it's quite toothless. Uh, so it's really going to depend on Sue Gray and Labour as to how much they adhere to whatever it is that ACOBA in the end send out as their guidance. So, I mean, it also all brought up all of this stuff, again, just two days before the local elections. And it's difficult to know why, you know, it was put out at that time. There were some concerns that it might break the restrictions on what government can say in the run up to an election. Local elections are different, so they're not quite the same as general elections in terms of the severity of restrictions. 
But on the other hand, it also was a reminder to lots of people about uh, not only Sue Gray, but obviously what Sue Gray is most remembered for by most of the public, which is Partygate and the inquiry there. So, you know, other people have to look into whether or not that has somewhat backfired in reminding the public of something that the Conservative Party would probably want them to forget. Thanks, Kath. I'm sure we'll be talking about Sue Gray again when Okoba finally makes its recommendation. Um, Raf, if not reshuffling, what should Starmer be doing to build on the um, the momentum of last night? I think his biggest challenge is, you know, is the the single thing that's hardest for a leader of the opposition to really change, which is the chemistry of how he's perceived in the country. And, and I think that's the biggest frustration I, I, I pick up from Labour MPs is, is you know, and it's not uncommon, it's not an uncommon complaint that's levelled against political leaders, which is that there is a sort of a private man who is very warm and comes across well and gets on very well with voters. And then when he's put in front of a camera, he radiates a kind of almost a reluctance bordering on resentment for the fact that he's being asked uh, to sort of explain himself. I mean, and, and uh, it is a fact of modern political campaigning that you have to bask in the limelight and you can't be seen to be always kind of covering yourself in factor 50 for fear of getting sunburned when that light falls on you. Often, I think, there's a sense that it's somehow seen as inconsequential, almost sort of grubby to, to talk so much about the presentation side of it when really policy should matter. And people say, well, Labour should have a vision or they should have a bigger argument. Uh, yeah, he makes speeches. He does have an argument. He does have an account of what he wants to do. I think it's very difficult because having committed to, broadly speaking, the fiscal envelope that Labour would inherit from the Conservatives, whatever you complain about with regard to the state of the country and people feel public services are in bad shape. Um, the immediate follow-up question is where you would spend the money to make a difference and then you need to have a revenue raising plan. And if they have one of those, they're not going to tell us what it is. Not now for the obvious reason that then the Tories would attack it and it might unravel. I also think they probably don't have one in a lot of very important areas. Uh, and so you are very reliant on trust and the personality of the leader and if he doesn't have, for want of a better term, a, a sort of charismatic X factor that can deliver that for him, uh, it is always going to be difficult to get from where he is now, which is an acceptable, unthreatening default alternative to a really, really unpopular government, to where they would like him to be, which is the person lots of people in the country feel really quite enthusiastic about being their next prime minister. And in, in all honesty, I think he maybe doesn't need that for reasons we were discussing earlier with regards to local elections. But that might be lucky for him because I don't know if you haven't got it, where you get it from. Yeah. And it's, it's worth remembering, I mean, the point Raf made earlier, you know, complacency is is a, a big problem for, for political parties and it will be what the Conservatives are hoping for. There is still quite a lot of time to go between now and the general election whenever it happens. And then you've got an election campaign and that kind of stuff, the, the ability in front of the camera, in those sort, of, those sort of unguarded moments that we know happen in election campaigns, those can be, you know, your winning or your incredibly damaging moments. So there's still a lot that the Conservatives will be looking for in terms of silver linings that they're hoping uh, still exist for them as a party. One thing I would, though, add on that, which is going back to the, uh, what we were saying earlier about Sue Gray, uh, a revealing thing about that is how much attention, how much bandwidth that took up in Westminster in the last week and the possibility that actually a bunch of people who can't get GP appointments are fed up with potholes in the roads feel fundamentally worse off than they did 
last year, the year before, just feel the whole country is basically falling apart. They don't care about Sugre, and they also might not really care that Keir Starmer doesn't look great in front of a camera. They just want the Tories out, and that is a, that can be an incredibly powerful motivating force that that will, could carry Labour in a way that actually they might need if if some of these other things don't fall into place. So, Ralph, let's end by looking at your new book, which came out yesterday, uh, Politics, a Survivor's Guide, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged. So um, can you tell us why you decided to write the book? I think um, at least part of it is personal. Well, yeah, the short version is the New Year's Eve 2019 to 2020, uh, after four years of the the most ferocious political combat, I'm sure you covered it here on this podcast, the the Brexit wars and the sense that British politics had got itself into a terrible mess, um, uh, uh, culminating in the the 2019 general election. Uh, I had uh, what I think is clinically known as a massive heart attack. Uh, Now, I, I I don't argue in the book, by the way, that British politics gave me a heart attack because I'd also been a smoker and eaten too many pastries and had sort of family history of cardiovascular disease. So that's I'm not blaming Westminster for that. But it did give me the opportunity to reflect on how I personally had allowed myself to get very, very stressed and agitated, uh, lost a sense of perspective on on both what was had been going on in politics, um, but also how we, we were able to communicate with people who disagreed fundamentally with us on, on some very, very important issues, Brexit being emblematic of that, and knowing a lot of people, civil servants, special advisors, ministers, MPs, who had felt exactly the same sort of toxin coursing through their veins and the, 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 the same sense of uh, uncertainty about how you could sort of decontaminate yourself from that toxicity uh, without just walking away from politics altogether. And a lot of people did. Uh, a lot of people just resigned and left to do something else. And so uh, the, the the period of recuperation that uh, I was sort of, was enforced on me by a medical emergency allowed me also a bit of distance to try and untangle what the underlying cultural and historical forces that had got us into that state uh, and whether that exercise in perspective might help kind of think about doing it differently. And you've used the word um, toxic, Raph. I mean, given the kind of historical perspective that you bring in the book, is it worse now? Is it more toxic in politics than than usual? Or is this actually part of a a much longer run? Well, that's one of the big, big challenges I found is is to get that sense of sort of navigating between uh, a sort of complacency uh, and abject and over compensating with abject panic and thinking everything is the worst case scenario and we're always on the edge of abyss and the abyss probably looks like the third reich and everything's you know everyone's if you say if everyone's a sort of a nazi or, or a stalinist uh, you you sort of inflate the currency of alarm and you then don't actually have a realistic practical conversation about this more mundanely bad government or bad politics uh, so I was very wary of thinking, look, it does, it can be, things can be very difficult and bad without it having to be August 1914 or September 1939, which, and, and I think one of the reasons people sort of got a bit hysterical sometimes about the state of things, I mean, social media and technology is a very important part of that. Uh, and that is, I think, qualitatively different in terms of the way politics is conducted and the way a public debate, the terms of public de- debate are, uh, are affected. So actually, we might not be, you know, is politics as intractable? Are the issues as hard as they might have been, say, in the mid-1970s or even the early 1980s or at other times? Uh, maybe not. Is it much harder to carve out a kind of space where people who have very uh, strong rival 
opinions on how things ought to happen, but can have a commonly agreed basis of facts from which you might extrapolate a debate and to where some kind of compromise is available. Is that harder? Yes, I think that is definitely harder. Um, and so in that sense, I'm afraid the answer, as always, is sort of yes and no. <laughs> Ralph Azkath says it's, you know, an election an election year um, over the next kind of 12 to 18 months, so things are likely to get more fractious perhaps rather than less. What's your top tip for trying not to get enraged by it all and um, tell us where we can buy your book as well well you can get the book in in all good bookshops uh, and probably some bad ones as well um the the, the key things i've well i said also I, I counsel from practical tips i do think a certain amount of digital hygiene i mean it, it, you know it's not you don't have to give up social media but i think certainly recognizing that often that your your phone is a device that is making you angry and uh, anger, while it can be useful to make you effective, if it's energizing and it you know uh, alerts you to a, some issue of justice that you want corrected or you know it's motivating, that's fine. But often anger be- becomes incapacitating, and also crucially, I think being aware that sometimes the anger that you're feeling isn't yours; that it's been implanted in you by political tactics, by a kind of a, a methods you know, for you know for ideological reasons or cynical tactical reasons to stir and aggravate grievance and I think I I try and draw a distinction in the book between different modes of politics one of which is to recognize the function of democracy in mediating between different conflicting interest groups and necessarily having to compromise Uh, and politics which is about securing power by energizing a, a set of grievances and a group of people who can feel very angry uh, and that can, that's a very powerful fuel that you can put into a political machine but it's not actually an effective mechanism for then delivering anything in government and then once that fails in government you immediately get into the realm of blaming finding reasons why why you failed and blaming fifth columnists foreigners outsiders all those things that that happen inevitably when when populist government fails so uh, that sense of, of understanding the nature of your anger and actually whether it's really yours or whether it's been stoked in you by cynical politics. Thanks for our words to keep in mind over the months to come. Okay, um, I think that needs to be it for today. Thank you for listening at home. Thank you to Kath Haddon, to Grant Dalton, to Peter Wilston, and especially to you, um, Raphael Burr. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and on all major platforms. And having voted in the local elections, make sure to give us a vote and a positive review too, please. Um, And check out a newly rebooted IFG events podcast sister channel um, for the best of our IFG events. You can find all our local election coverage and Grant's new reshuffles paper at our website too. Enjoy the coronation, or if you're not into that type of thing, just have a great bank holiday weekend and see you all next week. Thanks.